Welcome to Community Connection, a podcast produced by Pine Tree Institute, focusing on how our understanding of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, and trauma-informed care can help improve the lives of our children, families, and communities. This is your host, Dr. Larry McCullough, Executive Director of Pine Tree Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's podcast, which features a conversation with Laura Porter. Laura is a principal of ACE Interface and has been a pioneer in the work to help communities learn about the impact of ACEs in their communities. Laura's seminal work in Washington State over a 10-year period led to a demonstration of the dramatic impact communities can have on health and well-being when they adopt approaches that work to alleviate the impact of ACEs on children and families. In the past few years, Laura has been working with Dr. Rob Ando, one of the lead researchers of the original ACEs study, to help communities implement trauma-responsive strategies. Pine Tree Institute has been very happy to work with Laura and Dr. Anda as part of their Master Trainer Initiative, which has developed a method to train groups of dedicated individuals to take this message to their communities. This program today is being recorded in the U.S in the middle of dealing with the worst viral epidemic in recent years, which has created the risk of increased traumatic experiences for many children and families in our communities. So this is a particularly important time to gain some understanding of how communities might work together to alleviate some of the negative consequences of this tremendous national tragedy. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Larry, it's my pleasure. Well, delighted to have you and uh, delighted to be speaking with you. Now, as you know, many of our listeners are familiar with the concept of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and community-based responses, but maybe we could start with you explaining a little bit about ACEs and also how you originally became engaged in this work. Sure. Uh, Well, Dr. Robert Anda and Dr. Vincent Folletti, uh, two doctors who were doing research and uh, preventive medicine practice, uh, began to wonder if there wasn't something driving the rates of health problems that they saw in their patient population and their research populations. When they got together to talk about it, they both were hypothesizing that maybe adversity during development, during the childhood years, was changing biology and neurobiology in a way where people's lives would be impacted. And so they partnered to create the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, which was the largest study of its kind, over 17,000 participants. They looked at 10 kinds of adversity, uh, three kinds of abuse, two kinds of neglect, and five kinds of household dysfunction that create stress for children. And what they found was that those adverse childhood experiences, abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction are really common, and they're common in all uh, race ethnicity groups, they're common in all socioeconomic groups, and uh, they're interrelated. They rarely come in singles. Uh, In families that have one, it's very likely that they would have more than one. And the pileup, the accumulation of different kinds of adversity in children's lives really makes a huge difference for the life course health. So adverse childhood experiences are are driving the population rates of things like depression and other kinds of mental health challenges, substance abuse challenges, 
heart disease, diabetes, and other kinds of chronic disease, and also workforce problems. So the way I got involved with this study was I was working as a liaison between the governor's cabinet and 42 community collaboratives across the state, including 10 tribal groups. And our job was to reduce the rates of seven major social problems. And what we saw on the ground in communities were different disciplines arguing with each other whose problem was more important. Is dropping out of school more important or is substance abuse more important? And on and on and on. And so we were just asking ourselves, you know, what kind of information, if it were flowing through the system, would stop that arguing and bring people together and cause communities to really find really, you know, high leverage, interesting kinds of strategies that would make a difference in people's lives. And when we heard about the adverse childhood experience study, we thought, maybe this is it. <laughs> and uh, we brought in a neuroscientist first, Dr. Martin Teicher from um, Harvard University and McLean uh, Hospital. And then uh, both Vince Folletti and uh, Rob Anda began to speak regularly with our neuroscience partners. And uh, we were right that this Im information about how adversity during childhood affects people and how it's driving so many problems at once is really powerful research. And it's powerful because if we prevent ACEs, if we prevent this transmission of adversity from one generation to the next, we reduce all those problems at once. We don't have to argue anymore about whose problem is more important. Uh, we just solve them all. And that's in fact what we saw in Washington when we shifted our focus in this way. Well, it's so inspiring. And as, as you know, I've been personally inspired by this work. Uh, very, very excited. And uh, at Pine Tree, we're really excited. Uh, we're going to be starting soon, launching uh, next week, our master trainer initiative. And we, I'm curious to know how you came up with the master trainer idea. You know, how, how that strategy evolved and, and also what kind of results you're seeing from training master trainers around the country. Well, we, um, we provided education in Washington first um, with, in partnership with my education director, Krista Goldstein-Cole. Um, and uh, Krista trained people how to talk about ACEs in a way, ACEs meaning adverse childhood experience. Um, in a way that was really compassionate and that was very intentionally designed to reduce shame and to reduce blame and to create an opportunity for people to realize that we just didn't know how powerful these things were a generation ago. We're standing in the first generation that can fully hold this information and pass it on and, and prevent um, adversity, which is so powerful. And we found that education to be so successful in Washington that when uh, I moved from state service here in Washington to starting a small business with Dr. Anda, uh, we decided that we would uh, bring that to scale across the country by training people how to train others. <laughs> so that instead of just Krista training others, there would be hundreds and hundreds now, over 1,500 people that are not only qualified to train about, to teach about adverse childhood experience, but also are qualified to train others how to teach about it. And we teach this bundle of science. We, we nicknamed it NEAR, for Neuroscience, Epigenetics, ACEs, and Resilient Communities. 
And so that people can really hold this information and realize that we do have the power to dramatically reduce the rates of all, you know, chronic disease and substance abuse and mental health challenges and worker injury and on and on and on. It's, it's powerful information and people love to teach about it. I will say, Larry, there are some ways of teaching about it that are not so great. And so part of the reason that Rob and I decided to invest in this idea of master trainers was to make sure that the education about ACEs was, you know, positive and upbeat and was intentionally designed to reduce blame and shame. You know, parents do well if they can (laughs) and they do well with support. And so we're really committed to supporting parents um, and supporting communities and making sure the word gets out about ACEs in a way where people realize that um, people struggle if they had ACEs, they may struggle, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be ineffective, right? They may have challenges in their life, but they may also be fabulous parents who are able to pass on to their children a lot of safety and love and caring. Uh, So that's the frame we use, and we think it's a really important part of teaching about ACEs. Well, as as you know, that has been such an important aspect for us at Pine Tree, that whole positive approach to it and and reducing the shame and the blame. Um, And I'm I'm curious, as as you know, I've talked a lot with some of the trainers in Michigan and uh, some other areas. Are you hearing any results in other communities from master trainers working? Like what kinds of impact they're having in communities? Well, the most obvious is an improved knowledge about the science. And um, that improved knowledge also shifts attitudes. Uh, It reduces stigma around some of these kinds of challenges that come from ACEs, uh, like mental health challenge and chronic disease challenges. But also we're seeing uh, big changes in education systems, the changes in discipline, changes in the way um, K-12 systems are managing uh, their relationship with families and children. We're seeing changes in the role that law enforcement has in a community. Uh, uh, We have lots of master trainers who are in the law enforcement and justice uh, field. And uh, so they've really redoubled their efforts to be noticing if they're making an arrest or making a contact and there are children in that home that their interaction with the family is increasing family stress. And so they've slowly been shifting uh, their role to be clear about that and say, and literally talking to parents and saying, because I came to your door and I'm interacting you about with you in this way, it could create stress for your children. And that's not my intent. Uh, And so let's work together to make sure your child has the best support possible. And in one community, uh, they actually come back to the home after a period of days and say, I just want to remind you that my interaction could create stress. I brought a present for the family and I want to check in. How are the kids? That's a very different role for law enforcement um, that's emerging out of this new knowledge, this base. We're also seeing med school courses change. uh, Nursing school courses change, uh, social work courses change, so the higher ed. And we have one university in Oregon that made a decision that every single person graduating from their university would have uh, this training. And so that when they're delivering professionals out into the communities, 
uh, all of those professionals already know about the science and know how to interact productively with people using the science, which is so exciting. Big changes to wow. systems, oh, to education, and just yeah. to individuals' knowledge. Well, that is very exciting. And we've, you know, we've had such a positive response from the community here, from uh, from teachers, from mental health workers, from law enforcement. Uh, so it's, it's great to hear about all of this. So, um, so it's, it's great work. It's inspiring. Um, and I'm curious. So I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, we're having this conversation during one of the worst national disasters that most of us have lived through. Certainly, I, I've been alive for a pretty long time, and I haven't lived through anything like this. So I'm wondering what you're seeing and hearing about the impact on communities uh, in terms of trauma. And I'm thinking that this experience must be having a profound effect on children and families. I think so too, Larry. And, um, you know, I we love working with you and with Pine Tree, partly because you do think deeply about these things. So thank you for the question. Uh, and yeah. what I'm finding is that for some families, this sort of stay at home period of time has actually been less stress. Um, for some parents, you know, not having all of the busyness of having to have children at a particular place at school and for all of the after school activities and for all of the things that happen for parents um, has actually reduced stress. So I think it's important not to assume that every family has been more stressed by this period. Having said that, there are many, many families who are more stressed. Uh, their routines have been interrupted. Their life is, has less um, predictability in it. And uh, just having 24-7 uh, the responsibility of uh, school-age children and their education and their support is difficult for probably for all parents, but for some parents, it's very difficult. And all of us have sort of a threshold of stress that tips us over into crisis. <laughs> and what we know from the ACE uh, information and from the neuroscience associated with it is that people who had a lot of childhood adversity, a small amount of stress is experienced as crisis. And so especially for those families that where the parenting adults had a lot of adversity when they were children, they may be experiencing this COVID uh, disruption as crisis every day. And that is really tough for anyone to live through. Um, in Europe, we're beginning to see really um, good quality studies coming uh, from countries that have done random telephone sampling of households. And they're estimating that there's been an increase in child abuse, 30% increase. There's been even a larger increase in family violence, which of course affects uh, everyone in the household. And so we know that there could be um, children who are suffering, who essentially those are ACEs. <laughs> and so uh, we may be seeing a pileup of ACEs right now in households where parents are not having um, an ability to, to reduce their stress load. And then a brand new study coming out of China uh, just found that the post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, so it's post-traumatic stress syndrome until it lasts longer until it might be considered a disorder. So most people know the acronym PTSD, this is PTSS. Um, so the people with post-traumatic stress syndrome 
Um, the, that syndrome is attributable to the ACEs, to the childhood adversity, and not directly to COVID. So even though COVID is the spark that's tipping people over this crisis edge and creating these difficult symptoms, it's the childhood adversity that's driving the PTSS in this, in this China study. So it is really important for us to think about how do we add extra supports for families, especially where the adults in the family had a lot of adversity when they were children, and to normalize talking about this, right? That it's okay to say, I don't know why, but I'm one of the people that feels like it's a crisis every day. And for everyone to recognize that if you're one of those people, it's a normal response to your own experience that you've had in your life course. It's not something to be embarrassed or ashamed. And communities are just inventing amazing ways to support parents um, and grandparents and neighbors uh, so that we're creating a safer neighborhood environment for children to be growing up in. No, that's really interesting. And interesting to hear about the European studies. Uh, in, in one of our other pine tree projects, uh, we're working with a, um, a whole group of service providers for the city of Portsmouth, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And when we were able to reconnect after the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we, heard it, we heard it all. Domestic violence uh, had increased substance abuse calls were increased. Um, interestingly enough, um, child abuse calls had gone down, but that was the assuming that it was because many of the children were in the homes with the people that were abusive and that there was no way to really report or intervene. So they're expecting a major uptick when people come back. Uh, so we've had discussions about how you know, how do we, as community agencies even, coordinate with each other? Uh, which sort of brings me to another question. I know you talk with uh, a lot of groups. Um, are, are there maybe some practical actions that you're seeing that communities can take to really start addressing some of these challenges, ways that they work together? I mean, you, you mentioned neighborhoods beginning to form a little. Are there other kinds of practical things people can think about? Well, it's really fun to hear all of the surprising resources that are coming just from people stepping up and saying, I could do this, I could do that. Um, in one community, there's a person who is really good with drumming, with rhythm, and he learned that uh, drumming is one of the ways we stay regulated when we're stressed, right? There are ancient techniques for self-regulation. Drumming rhythm is one of them. And so he said, well, I'll just train as many, whoever wants about rhythm. And so there's all these families that are practicing a family rhythm with the idea that when we're able to, we can create a parade and everyone will be sharing the rhythm that they've been learning while they were in the stay-at-home order. Uh, so that's one of my favorites. Um, I'm working with one community that's had a series of disasters. Uh, COVID is one uh, that, that is significant, but they've had almost nine consecutive years of major uh, disasters. And from that experience, they've built some extraordinary resource. And one of the things that inspires me is they, between volunteers and professionals, they're able to make sure that every family has a call once a week from someone who's just going to chat. And that call comes from a native speaker of that family's language. 
And it's a check-in. How are you doing? How's your stress level? How's everybody in the household? It's just checking in, right? There's not a big agenda. Um, but if there is tremendous stress in that household that week, then that volunteer or that professional can say, gee, it seems like over the top this week for anybody would be struggling with all the things that you have that you're working with. Would it be okay if I let some folks know that you might need some extra support? And so this community's created this system um, where that family's name goes into sort of a pooled set of social workers that are working in many agencies, but whoever has the time can follow up. And so they're able not only to check in with every family every week, but they're also able to hear collectively from all the families in the community, right? They get the data back in saying, how are the families really doing? And so they've been able to do some really amazing things like um, all the managers do these big barbecues and then they send barbecued food out to the families because they learned that the families were really missing certain kinds of food and that kind of thing. But we're also seeing um, uh, service systems really think through this issue that you just raised, Larry, and that is we're coming into a period where it's the end of summer, uh, children are going to have more interface with adults, either in school or in after school or childcare programming, et cetera. And we are anticipating that there could be an uptick in uh, mandatory reports to child welfare. But if we were to see a 30% increase in child welfare reporting, most communities don't have a child welfare system that's really uh, calibrated to receive that big an increase all at once. And so communities are having these dialogues about how do we want to respond? Uh, do we all really know how to triage well enough that we know which families should go to family support and which should have a full investigation? And are, do we have enough foster parents? And are we doing enough to support them? Do we have enough respite? And really working through those system issues. And when I talk to those communities that are doing that, I'm reminded that our communities have done a lot to celebrate health workers <laughs> and, and the heroism that they are contributing to community by going to work every day in hospitals and clinics and working with COVID patients. But we often don't think about the child welfare workers who are going into homes every day in order to save children's lives and support parents and help parents get re-regulated and do well. And I think it would be great if we had parades and flags and celebration for all of those people as well, right? And I'm hoping we'll see that emerge as a next step here as we move forward in the next couple months. Um, well, thank you. Those are really interesting and inspiring. I, I, I want to drum right away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's a definite. Uh, and love the idea. I'm, I'm thinking now how our, our community has been talking about how we provide support. So the idea of finding a way to be in touch with every family at least once a week, um, I think that is it's an amazing thought. We, we do in our town pretty well with seniors, and there, there is a system for engaging seniors. But I think now we're seeing that it's really whole families that need to be connected. So I'll, I'll be listening for more about that. We'll, we'll talk some more. And uh, there could be magic so, between the two, Larry. There could be seniors that want to make the calls, right? I mean, it's, oh, it could be great. lonely yes. if you're home alone. And, yeah. Oh, really lonely. Yeah. 
No, that's a great thought. Uh, so looking ahead, and, and I know you, you always are looking ahead, but particularly given some of the challenges, uh, what are some of the things we should focus on sort of going forward uh, as we are thinking about coming out of the pandemic and, and really focusing on building our communities of the future? What, what, what should we be thinking about? Well, I think there's, there's there are two threads that come to mind uh, for me. One is we should be thinking about how we normalize conversation about these difficult topics. And that's one reason I love that you're going to have trained trainers throughout the region where you are, because the more we can talk about these issues without stigma, without blame, uh, the more likely it is that people say, hey, I'm one of those people that's got crisis every day, <laughs> right? It's hard to know who we should be offering support to. And our systems are built so that we offer support only when things completely break down. And wouldn't it be great if we could just talk about these things and say, okay, let's, let's figure out how to get a little more support around you if you're one of the people that experiences crisis. Or um, if we normalize these conversations, we can help people build emergency plans where they know when their stress gets to a certain level, they go for a jog or they drum <laughs> or they sing uh, or any of these things that help with self-regulation. So I think that that's important to be thinking about now and into the future is how, how are we structuring communication so that it's normal to talk about these issues. And then the second thing that I come to, that comes to mind is that we have come through this period of time where all of our systems have been learning whole new ways of doing business. They've had to, especially our health and education systems. And uh, I think it's important for us to document which things have worked for whom um, and in what context. Because when we move out of this period where we're mostly staying at home, there will be a tendency to try to go back to all old ways. But some of the new ways are better uh, and have worked better than, than the old ways. And so documenting means that we'll be able to bring that information to dialogue and to planning and be able to say, look, for this group of people, actually, Zoom was actually better. Um, and so how do we hold on to that for that group? And I think we're moving into an era of prevention that's much more personalized and much more tailored. I think in the last couple of decades, the prevention science was more about evidence-based practice and certain protocols that we would all do the same in every community. And that's been important and rich, but we're now getting to the place in many disciplines in medicine, and I think in prevention, where we're gonna be able to be more focused around this small group does better with this strategy. And that's a different strategy than another group and be able to layer those strategies into a community so that we're sure we're reaching everyone and doing a great job preventing problems in every, every person's life and every family's life. Oh, well, thank you so much that, I think that's a huge insight that, I mean, I know for myself, there are some things about the, the current way we're doing things that I do actually prefer. And it's, it's easy to overlook that, right? Uh -huh. it's easy. Uh, but I love it. You know, we're, we're not going to go back to the old normal. We will find a new normal uh, right along some of those lines that you mentioned. So that's, that's great. Thank you so much for all of Thank these you. insights. Uh, 
before we close, any any final thoughts that you would like to share before we wrap up? Well, I think that we shouldn't forget that we can still convene. You know, we've seen a reduction in some of the community convenings of professionals, but maybe even more importantly, lots of communities were doing family cafes and other ways of bringing families together. And I think some of that has slowed down just because it's nobody's role. <laughs> um, and I think it's important for people to recognize that anyone can step up and say, hey, I'm gonna do a Thursday night Zoom for parents of two-year-olds. And if you're a parent of two-year-old, why don't you join me, right? It doesn't have to be formal. And it doesn't have to be perfect uh, to be useful and helpful uh, for people's lives. Great, great thoughts. Well, Laura, thank you so much. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining Community Connection and our conversation with Laura Porter. You can find out more about her work on the resource pages at pinetreeinstitute.org, which has several links to Laura's work in Washington State and other talks that she's given. Also has a lot of other resources on ACEs and trauma-informed care. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that everyone stays happy and well. Thank you.